I want to encourage you, we're going to be uh, starting our Advent series. Grab your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Starting at verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to encourage you to really kind of listen and tune in. I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Uh, this is a rich section of Scripture that needs a little bit of dissecting, so you're going to have to kind of stay with it, okay? But it's rich and it's profound. Listen, listen to these words, starting at verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is still under the guardians and the managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the things that always happens, I'm sure it's nearly a, a unanimous thing for all of us, kind of a uniform thing, is that in this season of year, this Advent, this Christmas season, there are many traditions. I even saw in the Hickey family, one of the traditions is going out and buying the Christmas tree, right? God bless you. We, we did that for three or four years and, you know, sap all over the place, get all those pines stuck in your carpet. You're a pro then. Uh, but there's all kinds of traditions around this thing. and They're traditions that we celebrate, and I'm sure every one of you has one. Our family has them as well. Near the top of our traditions is what happens when we decorate the trees, and uh, if you really want a great tradition, I would really, when it comes to decorating trees, I would have you talk to Amanda Pabin and what they do with, she has, they have ornaments and with every ornament comes a story of what took place that year. So great one. The rooms is a little bit different. Uh, there was one year when Laura and I received, it was uh, a unique ornament from, from a, a special person in our life. It was the first Christmas that we had Grace. Grace was born in November. So it was one of those real warm and fuzzy 2006 kind of years. We had our first daughter. We were putting up the tree, and we got this, this special ornament. And, and every year we kind of giggle about it. And on it was written, nursing is a gift from God. And we looked at this, and we were going, Laura is a the executive director of a camp. I'm a youth pastor. There's a nurse on this ornament. What in the world? Nursing is a gift from... Oh. 
Nursing is a gift from God. Not talking about nurse in a hospital, but as a mother would nurse a child. Oh, gotcha. And we just laugh. Every year we, we look at this ornament. We go, are you serious? Nursing is a gift from Yes, it is. But family traditions are significant. They're significant, and they're, part of the reason is because they are familiar landmarks for us along this journey of life. We always think about, oh, do you remember when this happened? Do you remember, oh, it always comes to this time of year. Remember when we do this or remember when we do that? They help us connect to the past, bringing back some important memories. And they also help us to not just live only in the here and the now. They help us to remember when. Advent is much like a family tradition. Every, every year in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we join millions and millions of other Christians around the world in this journey towards celebrating the incarnation, the Christ becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And during this season, we will reflect on the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. But the celebration of Advent is not just about what happened. It's also about what is to come. In this respect, Advent has a dual purpose for our lives. To, to remember and to anticipate. To remember what Jesus came, but also to anticipate what is to come. Advent remembers the first coming of Jesus while also anticipating his second coming. Like all good traditions, it pulls out, us out of here and now to remind us of what this time is really about. In the late 1700s, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn for the hymn book of the Nativity of Our Lord. It was compiled by his brother, John Wesley, and we've, we've already sung this song this morning. You're familiar with it. It's a song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy, joy of every longing heart. So for the next five Sundays, we're going to use this hymn as a framework to remember and to anticipate. This hymn will be viewed as, as a prayer. This is to be our Advent prayer as we are waiting and longing. It reflects on the great doctrinal truths, and it also looks forward to more to come. Here's what we find in verse 2. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone. By thy all sufficient merit. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Hopefully you can see the dual purpose of this hymn. And hopefully you can also experience the dual reality of this during the Christmas season. In the midst of all the activity, all the celebration, all the hype, all the busyness that is going on, I hope that you will not forget to remember and to anticipate. Remember and anticipate. 
But here's the reality. For some of you, this is a season of particular difficult, difficultness. Why? Because maybe you've experienced a lot of loss or maybe there's a tremendous amount of pain and you're thinking about that, that Christmas time and you're going, man, around this Christmas tree, around this Christmas dinner, my heart is broken because there's brokenness in my family. There's brokenness in my life. There's been loss in my life. There's loss in our family. I want you to see the beauty and the power of remembering and anticipating. I want you to be able to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. So of all the texts in the New Testament that talk about the advent of Jesus Christ, Galatians 4, 4 and 5 is one of the riches. Many, many of us, when we think about the advent of Christ, we immediately turn to Luke chapter 2. You know, we've got this great big angel, you know, choir and the hell heavens open up and they show up to the angel or to the, to the shepherds and the shepherds hear this thing and they go, what's going on? What's going on? We've got to go into town. We've got to go find this little baby child in, in Bethlehem. And, and that's great and that's wonderful. That, that was the advent of Christ, his first coming. But in just these two verses... The Apostle Paul provides a remarkable summary of the Christian faith, including the importance of the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. Timothy George, in his commentary on Galatians, says this about Galatians 4, 4 and 5. He says this, One of the most compressed and highly charged passages in this entire letter because they present the objective basis the Christological and soteriological foundation for the doctrine of justification by faith. That's a, that's a mouthful right there. But in these two verses, he is saying, in here is found all the reasons for Christ and faith and justi being justified by faith. In these two, and it, he says, this is an, uh, like a diamond. And a diamond is this compression of, of heat and, and pressure being pushed together. And out of this Galatians letter is this beautiful diamond of the gospel. And some scholars think that these verses may have been modeled after an early church confession. Their clarity and their simplicity are extremely helpful but it has historically been associated with the Christmas liturgy and celebrations as well. In other words, this text has a great message and tradition for the church. What we find in verses 4 and 5 are four significant truths and hopeful truths regarding the advent of Jesus. So let's look at them and see what we can learn and apply to our lives. First, the first thing that we learn is that there is a sovereign plan by God. In the beginning phrase of verse 4, it's an important statement. But when the fullness of time had come, it's identifying that the advent of Jesus Christ was orchestrated. It was planned. It was implemented through the sovereign plan of God. It wasn't an accident. It was 
planned, implemented. It was put into place. In other words, everything about this first coming of Jesus Christ was controlled by the will of God. Some people take the fullness of time to refer to the way in which culture and the world were well suited for the arrival of Jesus Christ and the spread of Christianity. This was during the period, if you know your history, known as Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, a tremendous cultural time, a time of the dominance of the Roman Empire, which created relative peace for over 200 years. During this time, a a common language was developed. Travel was relatively easy with all the roads, and the cities grew rapidly. All this became the infrastructure through which Christianity could quickly spread. God ain't no dummy. He orchestrated all these things, and in the fullness of time, he sent his son. The famed church historian, a famed church historian, estimated that by around 300 AD, one in 10 people in the Roman world would have considered themselves Christians. The cultural, political, social, and spiritual climate was preparing, was prepared for the coming of Christ. However, while all this is true and reflects the providence of God, the context of Galatians 4 points to the meaning even deeper than culture. It's more than just a cultural thing. In this particular chapter, the Apostle Paul is advancing his case for justification being made right before God apart from works and apart from the works of the law. Or to state it another way, people are saved by faith, not by their good works. Galatians 3.11 states it very clearly. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. In chapter 4, Paul is comparing our relationship with the law to the relationship with a child who is under the care of a guardian before inheriting his father's entire estate. The idea seems to be that a wealthy family, when a wealthy family has a minor child living in their home, he is set to become the beneficiary. I know that if... Laura and I were an extremely wealthy family, and Isaac knew that we were extremely wealthy and that everything was going to be given to him. That boy would be buying more games and videos and apps and toys and you name it because he would be out of control if it was all his at that age. However, since he is not of age, a child is to be managed and controlled by others since that his life is more like because of that his life is more like a slave than a son he is still controlled listen to galatians 4 1 through 2 i mean that the heir as long as he is a child is no different than a slave though he is the owner of everything he is still under guardians and managers until the day set by his father paul's point in galatians is 
the way that the gospel through faith makes us more like a son and how the law prior to Christ made us more like a slave. As a son, we inherit the the spiritual blessings of our heavenly father and the law is our tutor by which we are brought to Christ. And once you are a son by faith in Christ Jesus, what does it do? It changes everything. It changes everything. Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to a promise. This is the good news about the gospel. But how does that connect to the fullness of time? In verse 2, Paul says, He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. The father sets the time. He sets the time for his son to become the full heir. And it was the father who determined exactly when to send the son for the purpose of redemption. The point here is simple but a profoundly important idea. God is the primary actor in the drama of salvation. It's not you. God is the primary actor in the drama of salvation. He alone determines the appropriate time for the sending of Christ. God determines these things. And out. Advent celebrates not just the coming of Christ, but also highlights the beauty of God's sovereign plan. God knew what he was doing when he sent his son. He knew exactly where to send him. He he knew what he would face, and he even knew how everything would end. God knew and planned the crucifixion of his son when the fullness of time had come. So Advent is the reminder that God is really good at working out his own plan. God is really good. And that is an important lesson for at least two reasons. First, it means that we can look forward to the second coming of Jesus with calm assurance, especially as cries come and pain comes and the world seems to be losing its way, we can rest with calm assurance that God is in control. With everything that is going on in Ferguson, with everything that is going on with ISIS, with all the mess that is in our political world, with the unrest in your family, we have calm assurance that God is in control. And that is good news. We don't have to be Christians who are freaking out. We don't have to be watching these Christian uh, uh, TV stations which are dealing with all these prophecies and conjuring up fear and just go, really? God's in control? Quit freaking out. Be wise, be smart. But there's also a second reason why this is important. It's important for those of you who are in the middle of a difficult season, which is only made worse by the holidays. 
maybe for some reason 2014 has just delivered you hard providence in this season of life. Thanksgiving was hard, but you know that Christmas is going to be even more challenging. It's kind of this climax of feelings and emotions and traditions and family, and everything is kind of hitting its peak. Maybe a health issue, a a relationship mess, a death in the family, a loss of a job, or some painful reality might just cause you to wonder, God, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And although you may never fully understand why, you need to be reminded that God is in control. God is kindly, lovingly working out his plan. And you might not be able to see it all right now. It's like the back of a tapestry and you go, what is this frayed mess back here? And we don't understand what's all going on. But eventually, the fullness of God's plan will be made clear. It may not be this year that you understand. It might not be next year. It might not be in five years. In fact, for some of you, you may never fully understand it in this lifetime. But you can still trust in God, whose sovereign plan is beautiful and powerful. But here's the second thing that we can learn about Advent from Galatians 4. There is a supernatural intervention. The word Advent means coming, and it's a celebration of the first coming with a view toward the second. Christmas is a celebration of the arrival of Christ in the flesh, but it is even more than that. The birth of Jesus Christ was a supernatural intervention. Many of you, when you hear that word intervention, you go, okay, I know somebody who needs an intervention. The reality is that you probably need an intervention on a daily basis. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was the means by which God made redemption possible. Galatians 4.4 says that God sent his son. This is a very succinct summary of the gospel. That God sent his son as the means of a spiritual intervention for people who could not save themselves. Here's how John, uh, 1 John 4 says it. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word. Get ready. Theological hats. Propitiation for our sins. The message of the gospel is simply that God sent Jesus to intervene for helpless sinners in the problem of their separation from God. John uses the term propitiation, and it is a Christian term that you should be able to use or at least understand. It means to be satisfied. He sent his son to be the satisfaction 
for our sins. God sent his son so that the death of Jesus could satisfy the just demands of God's holiness in light of our sinfulness. God sent his son is more than just a fact. It is the basis for hope. It's the basis for hope. And it means that God rescues sinners. This intervention is what the Old Testament prophets had been longing for. They were looking for a a coming Messiah who could help them, who would lead them, who would save them. And Isaiah 9 promised that there would be a child born. Listen to this. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold justice with righteousness from the throne... From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It would be through this Messiah that the people would be saved. Isaiah 53. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Now the people of Israel didn't fully realize what the role of the Messiah was going to be about. They they allowed their, their felt need for political deliverance and national identity to eclipse their real spiritual need. And honestly, many of us in the church miss it as well. We're like Israel. We, we have a real spiritual need. We want to be protected. We want to be cared for. We want to have our evangelical conservative views protected and cared for. Jesus, would you just come? And yet, they missed it. They missed that there was a real deep spiritual need in their lives. And yet, God intervened. They were helpless. They were helpless. They were confused. They were a rebellious people. And yet, God still sent his son. And Advent is a celebration of the intervention of God. And it is a time to reflect on our need to have Jesus intervene again. Our world needs another supernatural intervention. Advent looks back to the first divine intervention with a longing heart and says, How long, O Lord? How long will you tarry? When will you come again? And it was well well said by him, It is well with my soul. When the, the hymn writer said, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. There is something fundamentally wrong with the world. Sin. And as wonderful as this, this holiday season can be, and should be, 
It is never all of what it could be. Never. I don't care how wonderful your Christmas celebrations are, how great your turkey or your ham or your, your prime rib or your amazing Christmas shopping and how particular you are in the gifts and how wonderful and hospitable you are. It can never be as wonderful as it should be. Our world needs a spiritual intervention and maybe you need a spiritual intervention. It's important for all of us to consider our own spiritual needs, our need for an intervention. Has God rescued you from your sin? For the first time, have you said yes to Jesus Christ, that you can be Lord and Savior of my life? And if you have, where is that ongoing sin in your life that you are saying, Lord, today I need you? have an intervention with this. But it's also a great reminder to those who approach the holiday with huge issues or who have enormous challenges. You need to remember that God has intervened before and he will do it again. It was not a one time in history thing where God intervened. God will intervene again. He may not fully come until Jesus returns and make no mistake about it. He will make all things right. Everything someday, maybe not in our lifetime, but someday all things will be made right. Your marriage sucks. Someday all things will be made right. Your children are rebellious and someday all things will be made right. There's war, there's disease. All things will be made right under the rule and reign of God. However, until then, we've got to be able to say, it is well with my soul. Third, we can learn that there's a personal connection. A central part of the beauty of what we celebrate in this time of year is that the fact that Jesus entered our broken world as a helpless infant. His life and his teaching at times were absolutely paradoxical. For example, the humble are to be exalted, the exalted are to be humbled, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And that's what Christianity is really all about, isn't it? Following these two theological driven statements, Paul uh, he, he puts out the condition and the status of the Son of God. He was born of a woman, and he was born under the law. And both of these are directly tied to the humanity of Jesus. Born of a woman is simply a way for the Bible to say that Jesus was born as a human being. Paul had previously identified and established Jesus' deity. God sent his son. And now he is emphasizing that Jesus became man. He did not just look like a man. He became man. And without sacrificing his deity, Jesus became human with all the limitations associated with fallen humanity. He was tempted. He was He was uh, tested. He was tired. 
He was hungry. He was sad. He was angry. He experienced the full cup of our humanity. And the writer of Hebrews uses Jesus' understanding of our condition as a motivation to pray and as encouragement. If Jesus was human and if he was tempted, then we can boldly approach him for help when we need it. But Jesus was also born under the law. What does this mean? It means that Jesus lived under all the requirements of the Old Testament law. All. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He read the Torah. He prayed to his heavenly father. He attended synagogue, faithfully fulfilling all the demands, all the demands of the law. He obeyed perfectly while living under the same constraints and obligations as you and me, as every human being that has ever lived or will ever live. Jesus lived under the same rules that every human being experienced, and yet he never sinned. Never. Not once. He fully obeyed. So what do you see when you see a baby in the manger? Do you see just a baby? Do you see just the Son of God? Advent is about seeing both. The first coming of Jesus connects us to him in a way that is both unique and powerful. He understands the brokenness of our world. He understands the brokenness of your life. And yet, he fully obeyed the Father. He knows what it is like to be mistreated and reviled. And yet, he also provides a model for how to live. 1 Peter 2 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. But this is not all that Peter said. He tells us this about Jesus so that we can live differently. 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. Jesus was born of a woman and under the law so that we never have to wonder if he understands. What's more, it means that we can cry out to him to come when we need help. And it's also a reminder that there is a coming day when our connection to Jesus will be even more personal and more intimate. Lastly, we can learn that there is a redemptive purpose. Our short passage closes with the glorious reason why, why God has done all of this. Verse 5 gives us the purpose behind what Paul had described in verse 4 and the purpose behind the first and second coming. To redeem those under the law so that we might have adoption as sons. We've highlighted some of this already, but we, we need to see it even more clearly. 
Paul uses two terms that are loaded with meaning. Redeem and adoption. Redeem and adoption. To redeem implies that we have been bought out of something. It has a negative background associated with slavery. The picture is that a person who is one time on the auction block to be slay, a slave forever, to be bought and traded, bought and traded, bought and traded, as someone steps forward to purchase his or her freedom. And in the case of Paul's description, the slavery is not physical. It is spiritual. Human beings were enslaved to sin until Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But it doesn't stop there. The redemption was not merely just to rescue us from slavery and say, all right, good luck. You got your freedom now. What he does is says, he rescues us from slavery, but it was to make us sons. To adopt means the same thing in Paul's day as it does in ours. In adoption, you make someone family who would not have been family by any other means. Adoption does not just welcome you into a home. That is hospitality. Adoption says, now you are my child. It's more than just opening up your door and say, hey, come on in, enjoy a great meal. It's saying, no, you are now my flesh and my blood. You are my family. And that's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. In Christ, he has made us his children through adoption. And that is why Paul ends this paragraph by talking about the Spirit and using terms that are highly, highly familial. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That is good news. This is who you are. Your identity has changed from white to black. It is just, it is such a stark difference your identity has changed. In Christ, you used to be a slave, but now you are a son. Everything about you, everything about your future has changed. Your whole trajectory is different in Christ. Everything. So when you look at Advent and you see a baby, remember that it was this baby that made a miracle, the miracle of your redemption possible. A baby. And when you consider Christmas, remember that it was this baby that made possible the greatest transformation of your life. Remember that it was this baby 
who brought you into God's family. And as you remember, as you ponder and meditate upon, upon these amazing truths, you should also anticipate that one day that this same Jesus who was a baby is going to return so that we can live with him forever, for eternity. That's why at funerals, Christian funerals are so different, aren't they? When we mourn because, man, we, we, we have relationship connections and, and we love this person. But as Christians, we don't mourn as those who don't have hope. Because we know that Jesus has done something. And one day, we will see him face to face. And we will be able to see a brother and sister who passed away in this life. And we can say, high five, thanks be to God. Look what he's done through Jesus Christ. We don't have to mourn as those who don't have hope. We mourn with hope. Until then, though. We wait for the coming day. We wait. We will be made fully like him someday. And because of this promise, we wait. Even through suffering. Knowing that God is using everything to make us like his son. Advent reminds us about these things. It is a great tradition that invites us to remember and to anticipate that we live in this gap between the first and the second coming of Christ. And together we can say, come Lord Jesus. As you have come, come Lord Jesus and make all things right. Let's pray.